One of the core features of uh, this series that we're concluding today is this simple truth that you've been blessed to be a blessing. And I hope that you've taken that to heart. And specifically, what we've asked you to do is to do this choose to be a light for God. By adopting the people in your world as those you will bless. By living an intentional pray, care, share life. Those three aspects of living your life before other people. You pray for them, you care about them, and you share Jesus with them. And we're in this uh, fourth step finally now, discipling people. And if I could change uh, that previous statement, I would make it read this way, to choose to be a light for God by adopting the people in your world as those you will bless by living an intentional pray, care, share, disciple life. Not long after I became the pastor here, um, I shared a little bit of um, my philosophy for disciple making, and it was based on four things. It was based on us as Christians Plowing the hard ground with prayer. Planting the seed of God's word through our actions, through our words. Harvesting. And that means we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, seeing who might respond. And finally, parenting those that say yes to Jesus. Nurturing them in the faith so that they could likewise Plow and plant and harvest and parent. Same four concepts are said in different ways here. We pray for people in our world. We pray for the people that don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only God can save them. And so we pray that God might break through the barriers, the strongholds within their hearts so that they might be willing to consider the truth of the good news of Jesus. And as we pray for them and as we get to know them, we care for them. This means that we do acts of love for people. Maybe randomly, maybe specifically to a certain person, but we care for these people. And finally, as the Lord gives us opportunity, we share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We talk to others about what Jesus has done in our own lives to the best of our ability. And finally, for those that are Christians, God gives us the task of discipling them, helping them to grow. So discipling help means it includes helping other Christians grow in their faith. And this is something that God has given the task of to all of us, to every one of us. And this includes new Christians to come to the Lord, but it also includes immature Christians, Christians who have never grown much in their faith. They need to be taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to grow in their faith, wouldn't you agree? It includes absentee Christians, the people that we know that are Christians that we haven't seen for quite a while. And so they need us individually and collectively as a church to reach out to them and help them grow in their faith. It includes hurt Christians. 
Christians, just like any other group, might get hurt by somebody. They might get hurt by somebody in the church. They might get hurt by the, by the harshness of this world. This world is not a fair world, if you haven't figured that out. People get hurt sometimes. And sometimes Christians get hurt and they wonder, where's God? And they get discouraged. And they become absentee. But even hurt Christians are Christians, right? Even hurt people need the love of God, right? Maybe, maybe it's not even them, but especially them. And so God has given us the task of helping other Christians grow in their faith. We're talking about young Christians. We're talking about old Christians. People need to grow in their faith. And let me just stop right here and, and, and say something to you, church. Uh, we have a real need in our church for additional Sunday school teachers. And you might not think so. You know, the, the crowd's not that big, right? But if we're going to grow, we need more Sunday school teachers. And here's why. You could have the biggest restaurant in the world, but if you've got three waiters, you're going to serve about nine tables. That's about it. Okay? And so... You have to expand your service base if you want to reach more people. It's true of, of Coca-Cola, true of a restaurant, true of anything. And so it's true of us too. And so I'm looking for some additional Sunday school teachers. And, and by the way, to be a, a Sunday school teacher, you don't have to consider yourself to be a gifted Bible teacher, to be a Sunday school teacher, to be an effective Sunday school teacher. You don't have to be a super Bible teacher. You just need to be willing to help other Christians grow in their faith. That's it. That's it. Okay? And, and by the way, for those of you that have ever considered the possibility of teaching a class, but you're stuck because you think, oh, I love my class. I, I, I don't want to miss out on so-and-so's teaching. You know, if, if, if I become a teacher, I won't be in so-and-so's class, and so I don't want to miss out on that. Let me tell you something. You will grow more as a Christian teaching others than you ever will learning from others. Okay? Winston, let me ask you a question. You've got a large Sunday school class. Did you learn more about the Bible teaching the Bible or by learning from other people? Teaching. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. In every instance. Why is that? Because when you teach the Bible to other people, you study the Bible more. And sometimes people will ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. And that's not the end of the world. If someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer to it, I had that happen to me at my pastor's Bible study this past week. We're studying Samson, and someone asked about the Nazarites. And we started chasing a few rabbits about the Nazarites because Samson was told... Uh, Samson's mother was told by, by the angel of the Lord that he was going to be a Nazarite from birth. And so people were asking me questions about the Nazarites. I hadn't studied the Nazarites in forever. I didn't know. And here's what you do when you don't know the answer to a question. You say, I don't know. And that's what I did. Now, if you come back this Wednesday, I'm going to give you some information about the Nazarites. <laughs> Had to go back and study question came up, was Jesus a Nazarite? I had to go study that one too. So we're going to talk about that. But sometimes you learn a lot more teaching than you, than you ever would 
just learning. Now listen to me very carefully. Teaching a Sunday school class is not the only way to make disciples of other people, but it is a way, and you can make a very powerful impact in people's lives. And so I just would ask you to consider the possibility of being a Sunday school teacher. And if the Lord impresses upon your mind that this is something that he wants you to do, come talk to me about it. Okay, and we'll, we'll help get a class started. Now, going back to this general idea of making disciples, why is it so important that we as Christians be about the business of making disciples? Very simple. Because discipling others is how our faith continues beyond ourselves. Okay? Not a hard concept. Okay? A swordsmith who wants his craft to perpetuate has to teach an apprentice, doesn't he? Right? A couple that wants their family to have children, or wants their family to continue, they either have to have children or adopt children, don't they? It's very simple. Okay? And so if we want to see our faith continue beyond our own lives, then we need to share our faith with others and help them grow. And so I would ask you to take your Bible. We're going to explore this in a passage that may be very familiar to you, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And we may learn just a little something new today, okay, in this very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. When you found the place, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Here's what we read. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Heavenly Father, I pray that you grant us understanding of your word so that our lives might be changed. Help us to disciple others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's look at this passage, at least parts of it, very closely. Okay? Back in verse 16, we read, The, the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, okay? So Jesus obviously told them to go to a mountain. Why a mountain? Well, maybe, you know, it's cooler up on a mountain and, you know, Jesus wanted the fresh breeze. Maybe that's it. Probably not. Um, maybe it'd be easier for Jesus to ascend to heaven if he was up high on a mountain than he would anywhere else. Maybe that's it. No, probably not. In ancient Jewish thought, as well as other ancient cultures, the mountains were the realm of deity. Okay? In fact, those of you that are Bible students, as we all should be, you might want to, on your own, do a study of mountains in the Bible. You might find some very interesting things. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, Eden is described as a region that had a garden in it. If you read it carefully, Eden was a region, and God planted a garden in that region called Eden. And a single river flowed out of that garden and split 
into four heads. And since we know that water flows downhill, Eden must be atop a, a high place. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14 says that Eden, the garden of God, is the holy mountain of God. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 talks about Zion, my holy mountain. We know that refers to uh, the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. It refers to Zion, my holy mountain, being like the Garden of Eden. And so there's many other passages that talk about a mountain, a high place, being a place where God might meet you. Of course, we think about Moses going up on the mountain of God. I think when Jesus told his disciples to go meet him at a particular mountain, way up north in the northern region of Galilee, that they might have a sense that this is a special meeting. This is a meeting where they might encounter God. And so the 11 disciples, Judas was no longer with them, the 11 disciples went up to this mountain way north in the, in the region of Galilee. Verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. What is this all about? I mean, what were they doubting? Well, most likely, what they doubted was that the person approaching them or the person that they initially encountered, they, they doubt, some of them doubted whether this was the resurrected Jesus. They weren't sure just yet whether this was the resurrected Jesus. It didn't mean that they didn't have faith in him. It didn't mean that they'd fallen away. It didn't mean that they were lost. It didn't mean any of that. It simply meant that they were struggling to identify whether this person may be coming down the mountain to meet them as they were going up. Maybe, maybe that's the imagery there, that, that this person was indeed the resurrected Jesus. They simply had difficulty recognizing that it was him. And by the way, this is not unusual. Many people who encountered the resurrected Jesus were confused or doubtful at first. Sometimes they had to be reminded that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Or they had to be reminded that the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, we read these words, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. Remember? Jesus told you this before he died. Luke 24, verse 6, these words, Remember how he told you? They had to be reminded of what Jesus said not too many days or weeks before. Matthew 28, verse 6. He, ha he has risen as he said. Remember that? Jesus said he would rise from the dead. They had to be reminded. So they had difficulty identifying that this indeed is the resurrected Jesus. And so they had to be reminded. Sometimes Jesus' disciples didn't recognize him until they experienced some type of connection with the Lord's Supper. For example, you remember the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? Here's what we read. He took the bread with those two. He took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them 
And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They had been walking with them for minutes, if not hours. And they failed to recognize him. But the moment Jesus took bread and broke it, spiritually they realized, this is who this is. You remember at the end of John's gospel, where John and, and, uh, for Jesus feeds the disciples fish for breakfast. In John chapter 21, we read these words. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. So there had to be some type of connection there with the meal that opened their eyes. They understood that it was the Lord. Now, so sometimes they had to be reminded of what Jesus had previously said before they recognized the resurrected Jesus. Sometimes there was a connection to the Lord's Supper. And here, and this is very important, at the end of Matthew's gospel, some of them didn't recognize that it was the Lord until he commissioned them to make disciples. Now, why is that so important? What does that have anything to do with you and me? Well, I'll tell you. Some of us are just like those disciples. Some of us, I'm afraid, may have come here to worship Jesus, but you doubt His identity as the resurrected Lord of your life. And you might argue with me and say, well, that's not me. I mean, I came to church to worship Jesus, not because... I doubt him. I came to church to worship Jesus because he is my Lord. Well, let me ask you a question. And I want to be as gentle as I can because this is a very difficult question that I think some of you need to wrestle with. If Jesus is your Lord, then why don't you do what he says? Jesus tells you to make disciples. But you say, that's the pastor's job. Jesus tells you, you're perfectly equipped for making disciples of the people in your world. But you make excuses and say, I can't. Jesus gives you a ministry to do And your response to him is, I'm just too busy. So let me be even more clear. If making disciples is the pastor's job and not yours, then Jesus is the pastor's Lord and not yours. This is an issue of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whether you will obey the Great Commission. Why is that true? Because a servant doesn't deflect his master's commands to others. He simply obeys. If Jesus tells you that you can make disciples, but you respond, I can't. Well, then Jesus can't be your Lord. Why? Because a servant who has been empowered by his master to do a task doesn't complain about his lack of empowerment. He simply 
completes the task. And if Jesus has given you a ministry to do, but you're too busy, then your calendar submits to your lordship, not Jesus's. Why? Because a servant who has no time to obey his master has no master other than himself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to trust that the doubt that was assuaged by Jesus on that mountain then, once he gave the disciples the command to go and make more disciples, will likewise be assuaged in your heart today. As you understand that it is not the pastor asking you to make disciples. It is the Lord Jesus Christ commanding you. And if he is the resurrected Lord of your life, then you you should have no more doubts. You should try the best you can. The best you can. With the few talents that you have. You should try the best you can. To pray for people. And to care for them and love them. And to share Jesus with them. And to help Christians grow in their faith. That's the task he's given to all of us. At least all of us who would say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. So let's look at what Jesus says in this command in verse 18. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority means power. You have been empowered to make disciples. You can do it. You can do it. Just like your daddy who taught you how to ride a bicycle and who said to you, you can do it, and eventually you believed and you were able to do it, Jesus is saying to you, you can do it. You can do it. Jesus has given you that authority. He's given you that power. You've seen the old westerns. I love old westerns. You've seen the old westerns where the sheriff deputizes citizens to keep the peace and make arrests and that sort of thing. What's the difference between that and someone just on his own trying to keep the peace and making arrests? The deputized man has the authority of the sheriff. And when you get busy doing what Jesus has told you to do, praying and caring and sharing and discipling people in your life, what you're going to discover is that Jesus has already authorized you to do it. He's deputized you to do it. You already have his authority to do those things. He has commanded you to do. But the person who never obeys Jesus never experiences the authority that Jesus gives him. And that's a sad thing. I don't want that for you. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples. This is the overarching command. So how do we do it? We do three things. We go, we baptize, and we teach. When we go, we're basically just doing this. We're saying yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord. 
I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. You know, when I wrestled with this as a teenager, and, and I really wrestled with it. I really wrestled with saying yes to God. I really did. It was scary for me. Because you know what I thought? I thought that if I said yes to God, that he would ship me off to some other tribe in the deepest, darkest forests of the Amazon where I would have no cable TV. And I didn't like that idea. And that's what I had to wrestle against. But I finally had to come to the recognition that Jesus was Lord of my life. And if he wanted me to live the rest of my life in the Amazon with no cable TV, which was back then the worst thing in the world for a teenager to do without then I would say yes to God. Yes, even if it means that. Yes, no matter what. I will go anywhere you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. Because that's what the Lord means. It means I obey. Period. And so, when we go with the gospel... We're basically saying yes to the Lord. Wherever you lead me, I will go and I will obey you. When we baptize people, when people are baptized, they're made part of the church, aren't they? And everyone we know needs a spiritual family. This world is hungering for some type of normalcy in their family. 85% of everybody in Lubbock, Texas, does not go to church on any given Sunday. Okay? We're in the minority. And people are sitting in their homes wishing they had a loving family. They've got it right here. They've got it in many other churches all around Lubbock. But they don't know it yet because we need to go. We need to baptize. Those that say yes. And we need to teach them, which includes helping them grow in their faith and leading others to Jesus. Okay? Not difficult concepts. It's a matter of us trying. It's a matter of us doing and not just giving lip service to these things. I want to share with you a true story. Many decades ago, Pastor Francis Dixon of Lansdowne Baptist Church in Bournemouth, England, was getting ready to close the Sunday morning service. That's a picture of him. This is not a fictional story. He was getting ready to close the Sunday morning service, and all of a sudden a man stood up at the back and raised his hand and said, Excuse me, Pastor, can I share a short testimony? The pastor looked at his watch and said, You have two minutes. The man proceeded with his story. He said this, I just moved into this area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives, and and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney, going from the business area out to the colonial area. A strange little white-haired man stepped out from a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. 
I called a friend, and thank God he was a Christian, and my friend led me to Christ. Well, Pastor Dixon happened to be scheduled to fly to Adelaide, Australia, shortly thereafter to preach the gospel at church there, and in the middle of a three-day series, a woman came up to him for some counseling, and so he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ because she was coming to him for counseling. And she said, well, I used to live in Sydney, and just a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends there and doing some last-minute shopping down on George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? I was disturbed by those words. When I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me. I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Well, now Pastor Dixon was very puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach, about, or preach in Mount Pleasant Church in Perth, Australia. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. Pastor Dixon asked the elder how he got saved. He said, I grew up in this church from, from the age of 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus. I just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. My pastor had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Shortly after that, Pastor Dixon flew home and was soon speaking at a convention when he sort of mentioned these three testimonies. At the close of the teaching series, four elderly pastors came up and explained that they too had been saved between 25 and 30 years earlier through that same little man on George Street, offering them a pamphlet and asking the same question. The following week, Pastor Dixon flew to another convention to missionaries in the Caribbean. He shared the same testimonies. At the close of his teaching, three missionaries came forward and said they had also been saved between 25, 15 and 25 years earlier, by that same little man's testimony and the same question on George Street in Sydney. Next, Pastor Dixon stopped at Atlanta, Georgia, to speak to a naval chaplain convention. Here, for three days, he spoke to over 1,000 naval chaplains. Afterwards, the chaplain general took him out for a meal, and he asked the chaplain how he became a Christian. It was miraculous, the man said. I was, living, I was uh, raiding on a naval battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked at Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I was blind drunk, got on the wrong bus, and got off in George Street. As I got off the bus, I thought I saw a ghost as this man jumped out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? 
The fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked, sober, ran back to the ship and sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. I am now in charge of a thousand chaplains who are bent on soul winning today. Six months later, Pastor Dixon flew to a conference for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote part of northeast India. At the end, the head missionary took him to his humble little home for a simple meal. He asked how he, as a Hindu, had come to Christ. The man said, I grew up in a very privileged position. I worked in the Indian diplomatic mission, and I traveled the world. I'm so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and blood covering my sin. I would be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into before I became a Christian. One period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing some last-minute shopping, laden with toys and clothes for my children. I was walking down George Street when a courteous, white-haired little man stepped out in front of me and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town and sought out our Hindu priest. He couldn't help me. But he advised me that to satisfy my curious mind, I should go and talk to the missionary in the mission home at the end of the road. That was good advice because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am today by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries who have together led 100,000 people to Christ. Eight months later, Pastor Dixon was finally preaching in Sydney, Australia. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little elderly white-haired man who handed out tracts on George Street. He replied, yes, I do. His name is Mr. Jenner, although I don't think he does it anymore because he is so frail and elderly. It's Frank Jenner. Two nights later, they went to meet him in his little apartment. They knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down and made them tea. He was so frail that he was slopping the tea into his saucer as his hands shook. Pastor Dixon sat there and told him of all these accounts from the previous three years. Frank Jenner sat with tears running down his cheeks, and then he told them his story. He said, I was an enlisted man on an Australian warship. I was living a shameless life. In a crisis, I really hit the wall. One of my colleagues led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in, in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength, I did that. Sometimes I was ill and couldn't do it, but I made up for the days I missed at other times. I wasn't paranoid about it. I've done this for over 40 years. In my retirement years, the best place was on St. George Street, where I saw hundreds of people a day. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tract. In 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Two weeks after that meeting, Mr. Jenner died. If my math is correct, he probably witnessed over 140,000 people. Now, I tell you that story because I don't know how God wants you to live on mission. Certainly Frank Jenner's method was unique. But I do know whether God wants you to live on mission.
and so do you. So let's be about the business of making disciples for Jesus. We'll leave the results up to him.